participants in the series of Saturday webinars made possible this year by the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Center is an independent center at Ashland University offering a number of resources to help teachers teach young Americans, sorry, teach young citizens what it means to be Americans. My name is Chris Birkin. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science and History here at Ashland University and also co-chair of our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. For those of you joining us for the first time, um, the point of our webinars is to pull together some thoughtful and interesting scholars and thinkers and just have a conversation uh, about an interesting topic. So we encourage all of you joining us to join in that conversation by submitting questions to us via the chat box feature and we will try to get to as many of those questions as possible. The theme of this year's webinar series is uh, presidents and their times. And to help us think about these presidents, we are drawing um, speeches, letters, writings, and documents from not only uh, the Ashbrook Center's 50 core American documents list, but also other documents in our extensive database uh, collection of original texts and documents. The president that we're gonna be talking about today is George Washington, father of the country. It seemed to make sense that we start with him uh, for obvious reasons. And we have asked those of you joining us to, uh, to read some, some documents for background information, all of them available at teachingamericanhistory.org, which you can now enter or access simply by typing tah.org. You don't have to type out the whole teaching American history thing anymore. Uh, and those documents range from Washington circular to the state since 1783, <clears throat> excuse me, through his sixth annual message to Congress in 1794. And some of those documents were recommended by our panelists today, uh, who I will now introduce. Todd Estes is Associate Professor of History and has taught at Oakland uh, College since 19, is it college or it's, I believe it's Oakland University. Um, yeah, it's University of Oh, very good, thank you, Todd. Uh, yeah. Todd specializes in teaching early American history from the uh, American Revolution through the Jacksonian era. And his research concentrates on early U.S. political history and political culture. He is the author of the book, The Jay Treaty, Debate, Public Opinion, and the Evolution of Early American Political Culture, in addition to several articles and essays uh, which can be viewed on his homepage. Uh, Steve Knott is Professor of National Security Affairs at the United States Naval War College. He served as co-chair of the University of Virginia's Presidential Oral History Program and directed the Ronald Reagan Oral History Project. He is author of a book on Alexander Hamilton's controversial <laughs> Alexander Hamilton and the Persistence of Myth, and he also published Secret and Sanction, Covert Operations in the American Presidency, an examination of the use of covert operations by early American presidents. Uh, Todd and Steve both teach uh, courses in our Master of American History and Government program here at Ashland University, uh, courses ranging from, of course, the American Revolution through national security. Uh, so welcome to both of you. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. That's great to have both of you. So um, I want to jump right to it and just start with a, a big, broad question and throw it out to both of you, and then we'll see where the conversation takes us. Um, uh, the theme of the, the webinars is presidents and their times. Uh, and and um, I, I'm thinking maybe what we want to do with that is something like this in general. We want to look at, at, at 10 key presidents, 10 presidents that we think are 
uh, are worth knowing something about and and look at um, what 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 was going on during their presidency. Um, not only did they, how did they influence the presidency, but how did they deal with the events and the, and the crises and the challenges that they that they were facing, and maybe how did their actions establish precedents for future presidents? So my first broad question with regard to George Washington is maybe for both of you, um, if you had to pick one major challenge that seemed to, I don't want to say defined or George Washington, because George Washington, as we know, was the sort of person who didn't let things define him uh, or tried not to let things define him. But maybe what was a big challenge or difficulty that, um, that, that Washington had to deal with and, and, and also perhaps how did the way he dealt with that challenge or crisis reveal something of his understanding of how presidents should behave themselves or act, if you will, in a, in a constitutional republic like ours? So I'll throw it out to either of you who would like to start with something like that. Or if you don't want to answer that question, you're free to talk about it. Anything like so, yeah. Go ahead, Todd. Okay, well, there are a number of things here, obviously, but I, I think one of the things that um, some of these documents that, that I recommended for today speak to is the question of how Washington dealt with the idea and the problem of the growth of partisanship and political parties, which, of course, is completely unanticipated by the Constitution, completely unanticipated by the founders. Uh, and yet fairly soon into Washington's first term, we've got two clear sides, two clear developing factions, and two clear emerging parties that are both, I think, uh, top-down, um, Jefferson versus Washington and Hamilton's own cabinet, and then uh, also bottom-up from the nation's newspapers and taverns and coffee houses and street corners and things like that. So I think dealing with that is, is a totally unanticipated problem that Washington had to, to address. Um, and it's one of the things that he's certainly aware of by the end of his first term, and it's going to really dominate the second term, because I, I think every single one of the major policy issues, foreign and domestic, um, leads to and in some ways furthers the growth of political parties. And so Washington's challenge, I think, is to go from this model of wanting to be sort of this president above party, um, a leader of all the people, as it were, and by the end of Washington's presidency, I would argue that he's a very hardcore Federalist partisan. And he gets there gradually and reluctantly, but nonetheless, he gets there. And so I think by the end of his term, we have the contested election of 1796, Adams versus Jefferson, and two clear parties, um, not in the modern sense of parties, but I think two very clear parties are, are there. And so I think part of Washington's challenge in his presidency is to try to, to navigate a completely unforeseen circumstance and figure out how to respond, how to be, how to adjust and adapt as president to something that uh, neither he nor anyone else seems to have expected. Yeah, I would, I would agree with, with Todd that by the end of Washington's presidency, he is a hardcore federalist and he is clearly thrown in his lot with Alexander Hamilton. Um, mm -hmm. And I would also add just, just in, in terms of your question, Chris, about the sort of the challenges that he faced, um, I think for Washington, his top priority was to somehow inculcate in the American people this sense of, of thinking continentally, as Hamilton put it. In other words, getting the citizens of each of the states to stop 
thinking of themselves in a sense as citizens of Virginia or New York or whatever, and to begin to think of themselves as Americans. And of course, you see this as early as 1783 when he writes this circular to the states in which it's it's basically a plea for the American public to put aside their, I think he even uses the term at one point, local prejudices, and begin to think uh, continentally. So I, I think that was his, his greatest challenge. And I would also argue by the end of his presidency, even though there are clearly these deep partisan division, divisions, he has, in a sense, uh, succeeded in getting at least a majority of Americans to think continentally, to think of themselves as Americans and less as the citizens of Delaware or whatever. Yeah, those are both huge challenges. They're, of course, related in the sense that what Washington is trying to do is, is unite and kind of build a kind of um, uh, consensus about what it means to be an American, um, put aside local differences. I know in several of his um, uh, State of the Union messages, his annual messages, he is constantly appealing to um, sectional differences that he sees emerging already in the 1790s and urging urging, um, uh, in his own subtle way, urging um, understanding on the part of the, of the southern states who, who perceive already a kind of um, uh, emerging dominance of, of northern states in Congress and, and these things. But, he, but Steve, you point out he's even doing that before uh, he's elected yeah. president. Yeah, and I think for both, particularly for the veterans of the Continental Army, Hamilton, Madison, excuse me, Hamilton, Marshall, and of course, Washington, all the difficulties that they had experienced in terms of simply getting basic supplies from the various states uh, to support the war effort. Uh, those were very hard earned lessons that really were, in, in a lot of cases, these were issues of life and death and issues of uh, the, the whole glorious cause in a sense came down to a question of whether the states were really going to support this war effort. And certainly there were times throughout the war when that was that was not at all clear. So the group that emerges out of that Continental Army, Washington, Hamilton, Marshall and some others, you know, these are the folks who are going to go on to be the advocates of more consolidation of a stronger central government. And in particular, I think uh, a stronger commander in chief. Very interesting. Yeah, and I, I know that as 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 commander in chief, just to build on what you're you're bringing up here, Steve, as commander in chief, Washington was often criticized uh, uh, privately, but but especially in Congress, he was he often was criticized um, and uh, earned the sort of ire of certain sort of uh, congressmen for even speaking in these continental terms, even suggesting that there is such a thing as a union. The example that pops to mind, I think he got in a little bit of trouble when he um, when he was in New Jersey, when the army was in the, engaging in the New Jersey campaign early in the Revolutionary War. And he offered, um, uh, what's the term, uh, something like amnesty or, you know, uh, loyalists in New Jersey were welcome to be um, sort of forgiven for their, for their leaning to the British if they would take an oath to the Union. Right. Uh, Washington wrote up the oath. All they had to do was take an oath to remain loyal to the Union from this point forward. 
<laughs> they would be, you know, they wouldn't be treated as enemies. And Washington came under fire for suggesting that there even is such a thing as a as a nation uh, to which they could pledge their loyalty. Um, so that's a it's a tough fight that he's fighting from the very beginning because of these this this attitude that you're describing. Um, that's absolutely true. And of course, when he issues this circular to the states in June. 1783, there's quite a bit of pushback. There's a lot of criticism, especially from his fellow Virginians, that the the general had overstepped his bounds, that this was, yet up until that point in many ways, although other than the example you just mentioned, Chris, on the whole, Washington was very deferential to uh, civil authority, civilian authority. And a lot of folks thought he had gone way beyond what he should have in terms of issuing this, I think, seven or 8,000 word circular, which was much more of a, a political document as opposed to a military document. Stephen, Todd, maybe can I ask, is, I believe this is the last circular, is it not? Is this his last circular before he retires? I believe it is. That's correct. I think so. Contra- I think so, was yeah. There, was there controversy over his first circular or is, or is there something about this one in particular that was controversial? Uh, as, as far as I understand, there was, again, there was a sense that this one had gone too far, that he had um, uh, inserted himself into a political debate in which he was not, you know, this is not an elected figure, this is an appointed military <laughs> official. And the implications for the folks who would we would later call anti-federalists, this was, this was, uh, an excessive exercise of power on the part of a military figure intervening in civilian political uh, political matters. I see. I see. Todd, you know the the way uh, Steve is describing this this sort of overarching, if you will, larger goal of Washington's to build this unity mm-hmm. really helps to explain why he's so um, concerned, if not despondent, over the emerging uh, arguments and disagreements, and really bitter uh, uh, rhetoric that's being thrown around between Jefferson and Hamilton and, and others uh, mm-hmm. at, at the time. So how did Washington try to deal with that kind of that kind of partisanship that, that, that that's emerging in his cabinet? Yeah, I, I think um, part of what's what's happening is that Washington's model of leadership that Steve talked about is to really uh, consolidate authority uh, and power at the national level, and then particularly at the, in the executive branch. And that itself becomes obviously a lightning rod for criticism from Jefferson and eventually Madison and others, who of course are very fearful of all the accoutrements of a strong national state, even one with someone who is uh, generally thought by Americans to be safe and trustworthy with power like George Washington. Uh, so I think in many ways, it's Washington's model of that kind of leadership and that kind of presidential leadership that becomes a, a real source for criticism uh, during the, the first party conflict. And so Washington himself really comes under under criticism, which is um, you know almost unimaginable in many ways to think that someone like Washington would be um, would be criticized. But he becomes a target of Republican newspapers, of opposition newspapers. He becomes a target of criticism in uh, um uh, cabinet meetings in Jefferson and Madison's writings in Congress. And again, it's sort of a, a sort of light, tepid criticism at first, but then it becomes much more powerful as it, as it goes along. So I think with all those things, his method and, and mode of leadership is something that, that becomes part of a, 
part of the criticism um, that's leveled at him and becomes part of the, the party conflict itself. Yeah, and Washington, you know, how did Washington deal with this criticism? This, I, I think this is an interesting thing that Washington's example can teach to others when I teach Washington in my uh, in my undergraduate classes, for example. I mean, he took, he, he had a, he was a man of honor, obviously, right? He was concerned with his honor. Mm -hmm. and, he, and he, I know he, some of these things wounded him, but how did he deal with them? Either privately or publicly, these kinds of these criticisms of his leadership or even his character. Well, I think in some ways, I mean, he saw this as a kind of a symptom of, of um, uh, you know, part of the problems of, of not practicing the kinds of, of politics that he hoped would be practiced, which is what he writes about in that letter to, um, to Thomas Jefferson that we looked at in the documents, the August 23rd, 1792 piece. And, and I wondered if I could just have a minute to try to connect this. One of the other documents I asked people to read was Madison's Federalist 37, which I know is obviously Madison and not Washington, but Madison and Washington, uh, as many of us know, were very, very close, very strong allies, very closely connected as Virginia gentry figures, and they were also part of kind of a clearinghouse of Federalist information in the campaign against Anti-Federalists to ratify the Constitution. Um, and Washington, though he played less of an active role in that than Madison obviously did, was very much plugged into Madison. And I think clearly, as um, Stuart Leibiger, an historian, and some others have argued, uh, Madison and Washington at the start of the new government were very, very close, very closely allied. Uh, Madison in the House of Representatives is sort of the administration's point man for administration policies. And it's not until later in the first term that Madison and Washington begin to have something of a falling out. But my point is, I think that Madison uh, is very much an advocate of a kind of politics of conciliation, what he calls in Federalist 37, a spirit of moderation. And I think one of the important things about Federalist 37 is that it gives us some very significant clues about Madison's approach to political conflict. And his specific target in Federalist 37 is to talk about the Constitutional Convention and the whole process of ratification. And he uh, talks about that spirit of moderation, and he goes through all the difficulties that the convention had to deal with, all the difficulties of framing a new government, and, and why it's critical that people be willing to, to compromise, just as the framers did at Philadelphia. And Madison uses himself as an example without naming himself in this episode, in this uh, uh, article, rather, because he talks about you know, how Madison wanted certain things he didn't get, but other framers wanted things they didn't get either. And so part of the process of ratification is this long process of trying to come to terms with features of the new system that individuals might not like. Uh, and so Madison, I think, in 37, sounds that note of, as he closes the essay with, the necessity of sacrificing private opinions and partial interests to the public good. And I was really struck when I read Washington's letter to Jefferson four years later. His Federalist 37 is January of 1788. Washington, who again is very close to Madison, uses almost identical language. He calls for, um, uh, you know, without more charity for the opinions and acts of one another in governmental matters, or some more, and even the same word, infallible criterion by which the truth of speculative opinions before they're tested out by uh, test of experience are to be forejudged. Um, and then he goes on to say, my earnest wish is that instead of wounding suspicions, irritable charges, there may be liberal allowances mutual forbearances and temporizing yieldings on all sides. So that to me really closely echoes the language of Federalist 37, 
And I, I don't think we can prove this or document this, but we do know how close Madison and Washington were. We do know how influential Madison was on Washington early on in his presidency. And so I think it's safe to assume that the ideas that Madison articulated in Federalist 37 were probably also ones he articulated in private to Washington. And here we see Washington coming back and saying, essentially, I wish uh, both sides could simply temporize all around. So I think that moderating impulse is still there. And so to go back to answer Chris's original question, I think what, the way Washington deals with this as a problem of presidential leadership is really to say, look, let's, let's have some mutual forbearance here. We both need to realize we have to compromise. We have to realize both sides need to give something. We can't assume that uh, our enemies are hard enemies. We need to, to realize the, the greater public good. And so I think one of the reasons Washington, one of the ways Washington tries to address this problem is by stepping back and calling for what he says, again, is liberal allowances and mutual forbearances. Yeah, I would just add, <clears throat> Chris, I think by the end of Washington's presidency, this is a deeply wounded president. Uh, and in fact, he had uh, began, begun to write a farewell address where that was, it was filled with a sort of bitterness and a sense of of uh, disappointment, to say the least, uh, in that he felt that much of the criticism that was coming from the Jeffersonians and the Jeffersonian press was deeply unfair and that, you know, he had devoted all of his life in, in the service of his country. Uh, fortunately, that sort of um, uh, maudlin farewell address was discarded in favor of the one that Washington and Hamilton drafted. But again, I think Washington felt that he had spent the previous eight years trying to build a government of national unity and that in a sense, uh, Jefferson had betrayed him. Um, he came to this conclusion reluctantly. People had been warning Washington for years that Jefferson was uh, doing things behind his back and he refused to believe it. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the end, it was proven that, in fact, Jefferson was doing such a thing, was doing these things, even while serving as a member of Washington's cabinet, and the president felt deeply uh, betrayed. So I think publicly he did his best to try to conceal the the hurt, but this was, this was a very deeply wounded president who leaves for Mount Vernon in 1797. Yeah, that's that that's that's interesting. And you know, some people have portrayed Washington as as very well naive. It's interesting that um that, you know, Todd, you brought up his early um agreement with James Madison. Um mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, 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 they had they had so much trust in each other at the beginning. In fact, I know you guys know this. Washington, when it came time to write his his first inaugural, asked Madison essentially to draft it. And I think Washington right. changes to it. Um, because he trusted Madison's um, opinions on these things, our, I think he didn't see any really real differences between his own mind and Madison's mind on these important things that you're raising, the need to build a kind of consensus around the Constitution. And then, of course, um, Madison is, uh, drafts the response of the House of Representatives to Washington's inaugural address. And then Washington asks Madison to draft a response, his response to the response of the House of Representatives, which Madison had right. written. But there's that amazing degree of agreement between them that, that I guess a lot of people aren't aware of. But 
but that, but I guess my, my point in, in pointing this out is Washington's often portrayed or sometimes portrayed as being a little naive on these questions. That is that he, and now we find it's just not, it's not just Washington, but Madison and others may have been a little naive to think that we could actually have this kind of, this kind of nonpartisan uh, approach to governing ourselves and that they were totally caught off guard by the emergence of these of these uh, parties and these kinds of political differences. Is that a fair uh, assessment of Washington on this? That he was just naive and should have seen this coming? Or was he actually, you know? Uh, I, su I suppose you, you could argue it was uh, somewhat naive. Uh, I guess all I would would try to emphasize is I do think Washington did everything in his power to try to prevent the the divisions that occurred first within his cabinet and then then within the press and then with the creation of the first political parties. And again, by that, I mean, he really did reach out and try to keep Jefferson and his coalition, in a sense, in 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 the government, not outside of it. And uh, he bent over backwards trying to do that. Now, it is true that Washington tended to side with Hamilton far more than with Jefferson, and I'm sure that was uh, difficult for Jefferson's ego to uh, to accept. But um, the man went to Herculean lengths. Washington went to Herculean lengths to try to keep the Fishers from going public. Yeah, I, I agree with what Steve said. And I guess what I would add, too, is in, in Washington's mind, I think we see uh, a number of times the idea that the, that the Federalists, his party, Washington didn't really think of as a party. He saw them as the government. And the phrase that many Federalists used over and over again was constituted authorities, the constituted authorities. And we see particularly this coming up in some of the stuff we'll get to later with uh, Democratic societies, the Whiskey Rebellion, and Washington's famous denunciation of them as uh, self-created societies. But I think Washington really understood that the Federalists were not a party. They were the constituted authorities. The opponents were, on the other hand, a dangerous faction, and faction had to be snuffed out. So I think part of the reason that Washington acts as he does is, is less out of any kind of naivete and more out of, a, out of a hope that this is a temporary condition. If you can crush the faction and establish once and for all the uh, authority of the constituted authorities, then that's going to make things right. That's going to set things uh, the way they should be. Um, and, of course, over time, it becomes very clear that that's, that's not going to happen. Well put, Todd. Yeah, that's, a, that's really clear. And, you know, why not? Why shouldn't he have that expectation that he could manage that? I mean, he did a pretty good job of doing the same thing as his commander-in-chief. He, mm -hmm. he saw Steve pointed out earlier, or Todd, one of you pointed out earlier, he saw differences put aside at the Constitutional Convention. Uh, I guess it was Todd, right? As Madison reflects in Federalist 37. So mm -hmm. I, guess it was, I wouldn't call him naive, but there was a kind of optimism on his part that we could rise above these things and, and, and achieve something, uh, mm -hmm. achieve a kind of unity in these things. Uh, you, you got, both of you have piqued the interest of, uh, of, of, of a lot of uh, people joining us. So we've got some good questions coming in. So the, so the one that, I, we probably should answer most immediately is Bess wants to know, can you offer an example of what Jefferson did behind Washington's back to betray him? Well, the best you have, do you have all day? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, just to offer a few, and, and there were many. Uh, well, first of all, Jefferson hires a journalist by the name of Philip Freneau and puts him on the State Department payroll. Uh, I think under the guise that he was going to serve as a translator or something like that. But in fact, what Freneau's job was, was to write uh, newspaper editorials opposing the various policies of the Washington administration. Again, most of these policies are coming out of Hamilton's Treasury Department. So uh, the opposition press was essentially being run by a member of Washington's cabinet, uh, which is somewhat ironic and, of course, was not... Uh, it, it explicitly, it was not known to Washington at the time. Uh, but there were other more, I would say, more egregious instances, particularly during the whole um, situation with Citizen Genet and the American response to the French Revolution. Um, Jefferson, uh, as Secretary of State, um, behind the scenes was doing a number of things to make sure that Genet was warmly welcomed in the United States, which was really in defiance of the president's policies. Uh, there was another instance as well of another French uh, uh, revolutionary figure by the name of Andre Michaud, who traveled to the United States under the guise of uh, uh, conducting a botanical expedition somewhere out west, when in fact what Michaud was up to was attempting to organize pro-French armed resistance out in the sort of colonial, not colonial, but uh, frontier of the United States at the time. And this was in absolute defiance of a directive from President Washington that no, no American, particularly a member of his own cabinet, was supposed to be assisting uh, the, these kind of sort of revolutionary adventure, adventurers who had been sent to the United States. So there was just a whole series of, of attempts while Jefferson was still in Washington's administration, where he was undermining the president's policies. And, and to be perfectly honest, uh, Jefferson was deceitful about all of these things. And did Washington confront Jefferson directly about these things? In his letter, the one that, that, uh, that you recommended, and, or Todd recommended uh, in 1792, Washington seems to be treading lightly here about Who's doing what? Is it he's not blaming Hamilton? He's not blaming Jefferson? Right. He's blaming them both. But did he ever really confront directly about these things? Not that I'm aware of. In fact, uh, Chris, most of this stuff becomes apparent to Washington after Jefferson has left the administration. I can tell you this: by 1795, after the letter Jefferson's letter to an old friend of his where he referred to Washington as essentially being a whore for Great Britain. Uh, that's it. By that point, uh, Washington will have no contact whatsoever with Jefferson. And uh, that will persist until the end of Washington's life four years later. So this is kind of a belated recognition on Washington's part that Jefferson had, in fact, deceived him. He didn't want to believe it. And as I said earlier, he went to Herculean lengths to make sure that Jefferson felt welcomed within his cabinet and had a place within his cabinet. Yeah. Thank you. Um, uh, we have a lot of questions coming in, so um, I'm going to throw this one at Todd. There's one directly addressed to Todd, and of course, Steve, feel free to jump in as well. But I'm going to combine two questions. One question is, um, uh, let me see if I can find it. Um, 
Can you offer an example of how Washington consolidated authority in the executive branch? And then the other question is for Todd to uh, clarify um, the influence that Madison had on Washington's view of the powers of the Constitution, enumerated powers, and the and the presidency. So, so let me combine those two together and ask: uh, How did how did Madison's influence on Washington also shape Washington's understanding of the constitutional role of the president and, its, and the president's relationship to Congress? Well, uh, for my part, I mean, I think part of the the problem from the Madison Jefferson side is that Madison doesn't have that much. Uh, ability to sort of shape things as they go. I mean, again, Washington is not a, a partisan leader in his first term, but he becomes that. And Steve mentioned that, uh, you know, he has the falling out with Jefferson after, what, 1795. He has a falling out with Madison after 1796 when the Jay Treaty debate is gone. And then he never again, I'm not sure if he never speaks or corresponds to Madison, but he never invites Madison to Mount Vernon again, uh, which was just stunning because they used to spend quite a bit of time there together. So Washington actually has the falling out with these two other great Virginians um, because of actions that take place in, in the second term. But I think back to, to Madison, what, what Madison seems to be most aggrieved by in the Washington-Hamilton administration is the lack of what Madison calls this sectional equity or sectional fairness in all the trade-offs that go on uh, to the, uh, the deals over the assumption of debts and the location of the capital and things like that. And also, even more than that, just in the formation of, of everyday policy, Madison believes that Northerners, and particularly Northerners in the financial sector, are taking advantage. They're using contacts, they're using powers, uh, that Hamilton is behind this, and, and that they're essentially taking over the national government to serve the interest of some sections of the nation more than others. And this deeply offends, as Madison says, the sense that he has of, of what should be uh, what he refers to as the spirit of diffusive patriotism, spirit of diffusive patriotism, where he thinks that, again, whoever is leading this system, leading this government, needs to make sure that the actions of the government do truly benefit everyone. And, you know, Steve can speak to this much more about how Hamilton would answer that, because he's got a very clear answer for it. But I think Madison, to the extent that he tries to convince Washington of how he should lead in that way, really fails to persuade him fails to convince him. And I think by the end of the, the first term, it's pretty clear to Madison's, from, from Madison's standpoint, that Washington just doesn't understand sexual, sectional equity or sectional fairness between different parts of the country in, in nearly the same way. And, and for Southerners in particular, who are so concerned about the Mississippi and the West, they believe that Federalists don't care much about that at all. They're far more concerned with the East and the North and looking back across the Atlantic to Great Britain than they are across the Mississippi to the West. And, and that's something that deeply offends and disturbs Madison as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I, I think, I'm sorry, Steve, go right ahead. Uh, sorry, Chris, but I, I think, yeah, I think Todd put it quite well. And again, I think this all goes back to Washington's attempt or efforts to, to develop this sense of thinking continentally amongst the American people. And he's not, in a sense, he's no longer, I would argue, a Virginian. And the Virginians, mm -hmm. I think, are, are picking this up. And I think so. I think Todd is, is definitely on to something. This is a man, this is a president who wants his fellow citizens to think continentally, to think about themselves as a nation. 
And uh, let me just add that I think uh, one of the things that might be beneficial for all the teachers out there, there is this tendency to assume that Hamilton's policies about, about debt, the assumption of the debts and about uh, manufacturing and a national bank, these are Washington's policies too. Let's 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 make that clear. These are George right. Washington's policies. This is not a rogue Treasury Secretary uh, <laughs> acting in defiance of his president. Uh, Hamilton and Washington are in lockstep on these issues, and the Jeffersonians will eventually resort to the uh, sort of spreading the, the 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 caricature around that Washington is a puppet of Hamilton's. Well, look, George Washington was never the puppet of anyone. Um, mm -hmm. These these policies, these controversial Hamilton policies, including the excise tax on whiskey, which leads to the Whiskey Rebellion, these are George Washington's policies. He was nobody's puppet. Yeah, that's great. So that that's tied to an, another question that was posted earlier. Um, it's, a, it's a nice broad question, so I'll throw it out to both of you. It's from Dave. How much was Washington an original thinker as president? Go ahead, Todd. Well, um, make, I'm not make, sure that he was. That, I mean, whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I think that um, the, the great thing about Washington was, was in some ways not his original thinking. I mean, he had other people who did that. Washington's leadership, I think, is his great uh, great calling card, and that's what people responded to. Um, because again, he had always had at various times people who could could write for him, uh, as Hamilton did in, in the Army years, in corresponding with Congress and things. Then in his administration, he had a very able uh, cabinet, obviously. Um, and Washington was uh, never pretended to be a, a great political theorist or, or thinker, as as Madison was, or even a great political organizer, as as Jefferson was in trying to pull together an opposition. So. Um, I don't think there was in Washington an awful lot that's original where you can point to, you know, theories of government or theories of, of executive leadership or things and say, well, that clearly comes from Washington's writings. Because one of the things that I remember uh, way back in grad school and reading Washington's writings compared to those of Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, is how little is in there, uh, comparatively speaking, about politics. Now, it's not that he never wrote about that, obviously, but a lot of Washington's correspondence is about, you know, which crops he's going to plant and what went wrong with the crop last time and what he needs to do at Mount Vernon. Uh, and you just don't find many of the speculative or theoretical treatments of political questions in Washington that, that you find elsewhere. And again, I think Washington's strengths lay elsewhere. And I think he also was smart enough to realize he, he didn't need to do that. He could find other people who could. And I think, again, uh, having first Madison by his side during the ratification debate, uh, really sort of helped Washington figure out what to do and how to be and what response and pose to take. And then I think during his presidency, first Madison, but then very clearly Hamilton became his lead advisor. And, and I absolutely agree with Steve. Uh, Washington was nobody's puppet. Uh, he acted in a Hamiltonian way because he believed in the Hamiltonian programs and policies. He was a Hamiltonian president. Uh, and I think he did so not because he was played or tricked or manipulated, but because he genuinely believed those those policies and those ideas. And when you look at um, at the uh, later controversies, later in the second term, the Whiskey Rebellion, the Democratic Society, the Jay Treaty debate, he's, when he speaks and writes, he speaks as a Hamiltonian. There's not a whole lot of separation between 
Hamilton's essays on those issues and what, what Washington writes uh, officially. I think they do think, uh, I think as Steve said, in, in lockstep. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a key thing um, to note there. Yeah, I just, just to build on what Todd said, I, I too would say that Washington was not particularly an original thinker, uh, but I would, let's, let's just, you know, I'd like to make it clear, I believe that he was indispensable. In other words, none of this works, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about the ratification of the Constitution, whether we're talking about the American Revolution, <laughs> the successor right. failure of it. None of this works without Washington. He is the indispensable man. And um, one of the more admirable qualities, I think, that, that he had, and Todd alluded to this, he was not afraid to put smarter people around him, um, a Jefferson, <laughs> Hamilton, or others. So, and, and by the way, I would also say that he had what we might call today um, a pretty good uh, emotional intelligence, I think is the term the psychologists use. In other mm-hmm. words, I think he was a lot smarter than Hamilton when it came to um, uh, kind of uh, a political sense. I mean, he sort of reined in Hamilton and tempered Hamilton's extremes. And I think Hamilton even recognized this. When Washington passes away, he refers to, Hamilton refers to Washington as having been a shield or an aegis very essential mm-hmm. to him. And what he meant by that was that Washington had protected him, but also you know protected Hamilton from his enemies but also I think had sort of reined in, he recognized that Washington had reined in some of his more intemperate characteristics. So uh, this, is, this is a very impressive man who may not have been the greatest original thinker. So, so what do you make yes. of this? I'm sorry, Todd, go okay, ahead. I just, yeah, I just wanted to say that Steve makes a great point there about the emotional intelligence and that aspect of leadership, because I think that's where Washington just excels um, in terms of that quality. And, Steve used a great example of kind of reining in Hamilton. I I think, again, Hamilton can be impetuous and and, uh, very self-confident and ready to barge ahead. And Washington often does temper that in very useful and productive ways. Uh, And I think it's it's interesting that later in Hamilton's life, the last five years of his life after Washington dies, that's, of course, where Hamilton acts very uh, impetuously, like that um, the attack pamphlet he writes against John Adams in the 1800 election. Uh, yeah. Which again, you know, venting a spleen, but but uh, maybe wasn't the most politic thing to do uh, for the Federalist cause and things like that. I've often wondered had had he shared that with Washington, would Washington have advised him to tone that down, to leave that out, to to cut that out, something like that. But I think the emotional intelligence idea that Steve mentioned um, really gets puts the finger right on why Washington excelled, and I would argue that's more important to Washington's leadership than original thinking. Yeah, that's fascinating. So if I can if I can just read a sentence, this is right in the middle of the first paragraph of the first inaugural. Washington says, the magnitude and difficulty of the trust to which the voice of my country called me being sufficient to awaken in the wisest and most experienced of her citizens a distrustful scrutiny into his qualifications could not but overwhelm with despondence one who, inheriting inferior endowments from nature and unpracticed in the duties of civil administration ought to be peculiarly conscious of his own deficiencies. So sometimes people have said Washington is just sort of feigning these things. He's pretending to be humble, but he's really a, you know, a, a sort of um, such a man of great honor that, that he's pretending here somehow or, or 
sort of self-effacing, putting on self-effacing pose. But but you think this that this is serious on his part. He means this. When, he says, when he's been endowed by nature with, you know, he's not oh. the smartest guy around or something like that. Is he being sincere? I, or a little bit of irony here. I, I think that's, a, I, my, you know, sticking my neck out here. I think that's a s sincere self-assessment. Uh, okay. okay. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, that's how I read that, too. Okay. Uh, thank you. We have a lot of other great questions coming in, so I'm going to throw a few more out here. Um, uh, just a follow up to one question. Um, thanks for clarifying uh, Washington's position with regard to Hamilton's policy. Steve, you mentioned that Jefferson was active in creating this perception that Washington was a puppet. So is there a source that somebody could look to to see that evidence for that, that, that it's really Jefferson creating this perception? Yeah, uh, I've written a couple of books. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, read Steve's book. It's all in there. <laughs> Actually, I've got another one coming out in a few weeks that really gets into it. So, sorry, Chris. Sorry for the shameless plug. What's the um, look, it, uh, I mean, basically, it, it's difficult to find these sort of smoking guns, we might call them today, because Jefferson was extremely adept at using surrogates to do his for lack of a better term, dirty work. But uh, primarily this is coming through, it's coming from Freneau, and then later it's coming from people like Benjamin Franklin Bache, uh, Ben Franklin's grandson, who was very much in the Jeffersonian camp. Uh, so a lot of it is sort of press, uh, what I would call press, today we might call press leaks that, that make it seem as if Washington is a captive of Hamilton and of that sort of East Coast financial cabal that I think uh, Chris alluded to earlier. Um, uh, for instance, I'll give you one uh, a specific example that immediately pops to mind. Uh, during the Jay Treaty, Hamilton is up in New York City as a private attorney, but Washington is still relying on him extensively as his key advisor. And there's an exchange between Jefferson and Madison, these would have been private letters at the time, where um, they are essentially saying that the administration, the administration's arguments in defense of the Jay Treaty are, quote, coming from New York. And New York being, of course, code for uh, Hamilton. Now, the fact is they were right. Uh, in a sense, Washington was getting or receiving his guidance from Hamilton. But again, that's a long way from saying he was a puppet of Hamilton, which was the standard account uh, in the Jeffersonian press of the day. I think deep down inside Jefferson and Madison, Jefferson at one point comes to the conclusion that Washington has simply gotten too old. He's, uh, he, he, wouldn't, he didn't use the term senile, but that Washington was not quite as sharp as he used to be. And again, in a sense, Hamilton was, was calling the shots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think an awful lot of the examples of that do come, as Steve noted, in the correspondence between Jefferson and Madison, um, a, a lot of which they took to writing in code, um, where they communicate uh, their, their true thoughts, their secret thoughts, because Jefferson and Madison were both convinced that their correspondence was being opened and read by Federalist postmasters. 
So at a certain point, they developed a, you know, a code for writing to each other. And at one time, I think they had to stop the correspondence because Madison or Jefferson won. I think it was Madison lost his translation sheet. They had to write to each other and reestablish that. So um, a lot of the um, those ideas do come in the they are expressed in the the uh, correspondence between the two. Um, and yeah, I think Jefferson too, at a certain point, just realizes you know we, Washington is so powerful, we can't really fix this until he's out of office. Once he's gone, then the Federalists lose their great leader. And what we're trying to do will become much easier. Very good. Thank you, Todd. That was really clear. Thank you. Um, just a really quick question. Uh, somebody wants to know, is there, a, can we recommend a book that speaks to all aspects of Washington's life, one that portrays him as a man who owns slaves, but also is our first leader with grappling with challenges. But I want both of you to maybe throw anything out there, including your own work on this. Yeah. Uh, I strongly recommend to, to Megan and to others uh, Ron Chernow's book on Washington. I think it's just called Washington. might be Washington right. Life. Um, but Chernow, I think, deals most effectively with sort of uh, Washington's gradual uh, movement towards, I mean, not, not towards abolitionism, but certainly becoming very disturbed about slavery and questioning his own role in sort of uh, keeping this peculiar institution afloat. So I, I give high high marks to Chernow's Washington. Yeah, I would, I would, yeah, I would second that. I think that's a great um, sort of life and times biography, which makes a number of really good analytical points too. Um, there's another book that I really like by Peter Henriquez called, uh, I think it's called Realistic Visionary, um, which is a, uh, Series, every chapter is on sort of a different theme about Washington's life and career. And they're, they're wonderful little chapters because you can sort of dive in and out to look at whatever particular aspect of his, of his life you're interested in. But that's a very good and I think a very nicely uh, researched volume that, that sort of looks at Washington and tries to consider some of the larger questions about what made him great, what his uh, weak, weaknesses were, um, how he thought about things like, like slavery and like political conflict. and uh, those kinds of things. So uh, I, I think that book, the Peter Henrique's Realistic Visionary, which is uh, probably less than 10 years old, but um, mm -hmm. in 2008, 2009, somewhere in there. Yep. That's great. And, um, and what do you get to think about? Kind of a nice short alternative to the Cherno. Yeah, very good. Uh, what about the Flexner book, in Indispensable Man? Is that worth? Uh, I would. To me, uh, Chris, that book is is uh, reflective of the era in which it was written, which I think was about the 60s and the 70s. It's a lot of uh, uh, psycho history, psychobiography, um, okay. which I find a little bit off-putting, but great okay. title, however. Good. Very good. Um, let's see. We have... Again, a lot of really other good questions coming in here. Um, um, let's talk, actually, let's talk a little bit about some of the things during his presidency that um, that are that are controversial. So we mentioned three of them, right? The proclamation of neutrality, so-called, by the way, which never even mentions the word neutrality. Uh, mm -hmm. um, you've got that, you've got the, uh, the Jay Treaty, and you've got the whiskey, uh, the whiskey tax and the whiskey rebellion, the way that's handled. Uh, of the three of those, I mean, if you don't mind, say something about any of them. But of the three of those, the hardest one for me to persuade my students to take seriously is Jay. Uh, 
there, there's a tendency among my student, undergraduate students especially, to, to really not like the J tree. Is yeah. there any good thing we can say about Washington's role in the J tree? Oh, I think I think so. Um, perhaps not surprisingly coming from me, but um, look, I think the J Treaty bought the United States what it needed most of all, which was time. And that was time to avoid a conflict with the world's greatest superpower, Great Britain. Um, you know, it did resolve some of the issues. It resolved the forts in the Northwest Territory. Um, it, it, it improved America's trading relationship with Great Britain. Those are some of the specific things that came out of it. I know the Southerners were upset that it didn't deal with the question of reparations for slaves who had been either, depending on your point of view, either taken, stolen, or liberated uh, during the Revolutionary War. But again, more importantly, and I think a lot of diplomatic historians believe this, it bought this young nation that was just getting on its feet some very valuable time and um, that that's not something that should be should be frowned upon or looked down upon. Well, that's great, Steve. That's very that's very good. Thank you. Yeah, um, on the J Treaty. Yeah, on the J Treaty. Um, I, I'll put in a plug for my book on that. Uh, looks at the debate about that because I think one I of the might have something to say. Cut me off as I go on too long here. Um, I think Washington is one of the stars of that, because what, what I try to show there in the treaty debate, I think what happens is the Federalists are masterful at uh, playing the, the politics of that issue. They, they go from the treaty being enormously unpopular in the summer of 1795 when it's first uh, uh, published, and, and then, of course, by the next spring, April of 1796, um, it, it's not only been approved by the Senate, but, but also uh, funding for some of the commissions in there are approved by the House as well. And I think more importantly, public opinion, to the extent that you can measure public opinion, uh, you know, pre-polling and focus groups and stuff like that, it can certainly be argued has certainly come around to support the treaty because the Federalist arguments consistently from start to finish were exactly as Steve just articulated. It's not the best treaty, but it buys us time. It keeps us out of war. Uh, and that was the thing the Federalists came back to over and over again. We cannot afford a war. The economy can't. The nation can't. We're not ready for it. We don't want this kind of war. And I think that what the Federalists do in their pro-treaty campaign is to emphasize um, that this is something that has to be done right now. Uh, and to reject the treaty would be to provoke a potential either trade war or shooting war or both with a nation the U.S. cannot afford to fight. And I think what Washington does in particular, uh, he's sort of a master, I think, of timing in the treaty debate. Because once the Senate has, has ratified and everything's been published and the treaty debate spills out in the summer and fall, of 95, then there's a bit of a lull until the treaty debate is picked up again in the House of Representatives. And the House kind of overplays its hand by demanding to see all of John Jay's papers, to see the correspondence with George Washington. And Washington claims what we would call executive privilege and says, look, you have no right to, to see that. This is between the president and the Senate. The Constitution says that the president and Senate make treaties, and the House has no role in this except to approve funding measures. And what that allows the Federalists to do is to turn this treaty debate into a referendum on George Washington. Yeah. Do you stand with George Washington and trust him or, or not? And that's obviously a hugely favorable position for the Federalists, even as late as 1796 with the emergence of, of the Jeffersonian Party and the, the newspaper opposition and the opposition in Congress and, and everything else. So I think Washington sort of is at his 
best in terms of leadership by biding his time in terms of when he released information, then waiting for the other side to overplay its hand, and then pouncing in the way that he did in a way that really rallied people to the to the Federalist cause and, and to the treaty cause. So it's it's a great example of what um, uh, what I argue is a great example of Fred Greenstein's notion of the hidden hand president, which is something, of course, Greenstein applied to Dwight Eisenhower, uh, but it's something Stuart Leibiger has argued that I've argued as well, I, I think really fits George Washington's leadership style. And it's it again goes back to that great point Steve made about emotional intelligence and knowing when to take certain steps, when it's important to act, when it's important to wait, uh, and really sort of playing, letting things play out until you're in a better position and a better point of time. And that's what I think Washington did so well. And the J3 is a great case study of that. Yeah, I, w- I would just echo what Todd said, that this, the Washington's handling of the Jay Treaty is in some ways his greatest moment in terms of a president's uh, exercising sort of political skills. Uh, uh, Todd, Todd laid it out very nicely. And this was, let's not forget just how deeply divided the country was over this issue. Jay, John Jay was quoted at one point as saying that he could have walked the entire Atlantic seaboard at night and had the entire journey illuminated by the effigies of himself burning <laughs> from yeah, New Hampshire to Georgia. Right. And at one point, Hamilton actually gave a public speech in New York City in defense of the treaty uh, and was hit in the head with a rock by a, an upset mm-hmm. group of, uh, of Jeffersonians, which prompted a comment from Jefferson, which is actually quite funny, Something along the lines of when Je- uh, when Hamilton was hit in the head with that rock, the entire <laughs> brains of the Federalist Party uh, were almost spewed onto the sidewalk. So that, <laughs> that image of Hamilton as controlling everything on the other side. Yeah, that's great. Did Washington? Uh, so I, this is really I'm fascinated by this. I, this is an alternative view to this that you don't read about frequently, that, that, that Washington, this is an example of masterful politics on the part of Washington. And, it, and it's, it's in, in disagreement with the, the argument, again, that, you, that I read frequently, which is Washington was really bad at politics. He was naive. He was just led by the nose by, by Hamilton and others. So this is, this is really interesting. Why did, but um, I can go back to something Todd raised. Did, did, did Washington publicly Articulate a defense of the Jay Treaty. It seemed to me he was hesitant to do that. Or, or is there some defense that Washington made publicly, other than his messages to Congress? Or would that have been would that have been something Washington would never have done? Say, go to the press directly, uh, or writing you know, something like this in defense of the treaty. Yeah, well, Hamilton and Rufus King did that. They wrote, I think it was thirty-eight essays. I think Hamilton and ten more by King. Uh, that were, you know, a defense of the of the Jay Treaty, and those began appearing in the newspapers in the same way that the Federalist essays had appeared, you know, serially uh, over time in the summer and fall of, of 1795. And I, I think just as Washington was very impressed with the quality of the arguments in the Federalist back in the ratification debate, I think he was also very impressed with the quality of of Hamilton and King's work in uh, in, in those um, uh, defense essays. Uh, th- that they wrote in during the Jay Treaty debate. So it was not Washington's style to write publicly because, again, that wasn't he, he didn't do that well. 
Uh, and he didn't need to do that because he had Hamilton and others who, who could do that much more effectively. Did, did Hamilton and King write under pseudonyms, Todd? You know? Yeah. Um, it, what did they call it? Camillus or Camillus? I'm never sure how that's yeah, pronounced. Okay, right. Uh, Camillus, yeah. That was the, the pen name they used for the pseudonym they used for the, uh, the essays that I think are formally called Defense of the, of the British Treaty. Or, there's a much formal treaty. Okay. Formal title, I mean. Okay, great. Um, yeah, that's fine. How did uh, how did people? This is interesting on the J Tree. How controversial was the the proclamation of neutrality? Because we know Jefferson was, you know, Jefferson was all up in arms over this, and he he got in touch with Madison. Had Madison write the response to um, to Pacificus Hamilton's. Um, somebody's beeping. I'm not sure what the beeping is. I apologize for that. Um, yeah. Uh, we know Jefferson wrote to Madison. Madison wrote a, a response to Hamilton's defense of the proclamation of neutrality. But was it as controversial as as Jefferson seemed to make it be, make it out to be? Oh yes, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, in in a way, you had two levels operating at the same time in the battle over the neutrality proclamation. One was a sort of constitutional argument over which branch of the government, the Congress or the presidency, had the legitimate authority to issue such a proclamation, in other words, to proclaim that the United States was going to remain neutral. And then on the, uh, the, 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 politic, the policy level, it was a battle over the sort of Francophile coalition versus the Anglophile coalition, to really simplify things. Not that Jefferson or Madison wanted the United States to sort of intervene militarily on behalf of France, but there were differing tilts in place within that administration. Hamilton thinking that this new young nation needed to keep its eye on the bigger power, the more influential trading partner, for instance, which was Great Britain, and Jefferson and Madison believing in part that we had a sort of moral commitment to the French, whom had, of course, helped us secure uh, our freedom and our liberty. So you got to keep in mind when you're talking about this battle over the neutrality proclamation, there's sort of a constitutional struggle going underway and a, a policy struggle underway. And of course, it was, you know, it's hard to say which one of these battles we've talked about all morning was the most significant. But you could make a good case that the neutrality proclamation was the 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 point of, of the point of no return in terms of keeping this national unity government together? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree with Steve on that. I mean, I think what what you um, what what you get from um, from Madison here. Let me make a larger point. I think in many ways, um, what Madison and Jefferson want, it seems, they're they're not so much anti-neutrality because they're not really warmongering themselves. But what they very clearly want is a pro-French neutrality. And I think what Hamilton and the Federalists want is a pro-British neutrality. So I'm not sure that they're really fighting over should we be at war or not. Uh, but I think they very clearly want to indicate by what the neutrality looks like and what it will do, um, which nation the U.S. is aligning with. And if you're Madison and Jefferson and the, the Democratic Republicans, then you believe that uh, there is a deep, strong commitment to France uh, that's anti-monarchical and, and uh, democratic and all kinds of things. And that's where the U.S. should be aligning itself in terms of sympathy and in terms of 
point of view and in terms of position. And obviously, Hamilton and the Federalists had a very different view of it, that they saw France as this uh, uh, bastion of Jacobinism, of infidelity in every meaning of that word, and, and just saw France as a, as a horrible place, the last place the U.S. would want to be identified with. And of course, from the Jeffersonian perspective, Great Britain was that way as well for them. If I could also say, uh, Chris, in regards to uh, the neutrality proclamation, but in, in, in a bigger, in a larger sense, Washington was very quick to sort of catch on to the oh, disturbing nature of the French Revolution. In other words, uh, again, this is an instance where people assume it was Hamilton influencing Washington in a pro-British, anti-French revolutionary direction. But that's not the case. Washington was disturbed very early on by the reports he was receiving that the revolution, in a sense, was beginning to turn in on itself, was beginning to consume itself uh, in a kind of horrifying fashion. So it's, again, just interesting to note that he's he's quick to see that this is a revolution that is sort of uh, uh, degenerating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is that, does that reveal, again, some sort of deeper insight on Washington, Washington's part that, again, as we were saying earlier, he's often... He's often portrayed as not having this kind of understand, broader understanding of the of the politics, but that seems to be deeply insightful on his part. I, I think so, Chris. I I, I believe mm -hmm. that this is a good example of that. Yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, was there controversy over so if so that larger sort of view of how do we align ourselves in the future? Is it more are we going to align ourselves with the French or the British? Um, that's an interesting argument. Was there much controversy over the issuing of the proclamation itself? And the reason I ask that is because uh, there have been a few questions submitted about Washington's sort of constitutional views of the executive. Um, what is the place of the executive in this, in our constitutional system of government? Well, yeah. And, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Steve can speak more to this because uh, I know he's written about these things quite a bit. But I just just briefly, I think um, part of the argument that Hamilton makes in his Pacificus essays is that while it's true constitutionally that Congress declares war, Hamilton introduces the notion that the president is in charge of preserving peace. And so, therefore, when you are not at war, the president's obligation is to do whatever it takes to keep the nation out of war, to preserve that peace. And so in that sense, the president is absolutely, the executive is absolutely the central leading figure in terms of shaping foreign policy, um, you know, until there's a need to go to war, which only Congress can declare. And then, of course, the president becomes commander in chief. But I think in those specific essays, Hamilton spells out that notion of what the executive should do and what role he should play in foreign policy. And again, as Steve has, has uh, taught us in his writings, um, Hamilton and, and Washington are, they're in lockstep there. I mean, that's Hamilton writing, but clearly I think those are Washington's ideas that he shares as well. One thing we should probably mention in, in this context is that Washington had, of course, gone up to the Senate in, I believe, 1790 to discuss that Creek, a, a pending treaty with the Creek Indians. And um, <laughs> as you all know, I mean, this turned into a, a three or four hour uh, Senate diatribe about all sorts of issues unrelated to the Creek Indian Treaty, 
And there does seem to have been after that, after that very uncomfortable event where Washington allegedly said, you know, something to the effect of I'm not I'm never going to do that again. You know, that this is a sort of gradual movement on Washington's part towards uh, taking the lead, in a sense, on foreign policy. And this is a precedent that persists to this day. So it's important to keep keep that Creek Indian Treaty experience in mind when you think about his issuing the neutrality proclamation. Yeah, that's yeah. great because I was going to ask that question. About, about, I mean, scholars love to argue over this. Who who should take the lead when it comes to American foreign policy? Does the is it the president? Does is it Congress? Who has more weight or constitutional authority in shaping foreign policy? And um, Washington seems. Please agree or disagree with me on this. Uh, help me understand that Washington seems to have established a precedent that leans more toward, I don't know, maybe leadership's not the right term, but presidential autonomy in in dealing with foreign policy issues without having to go to Congress or uh, to consult them on everything, the Senate, especially in the case of this treaty. Is that a fair statement or, or not? I, I believe it is. And uh, to give further evidence to, to this claim that Washington had those views uh, in his first annual message to Congress, or today we would call it his first State of the Union address, uh, the president asked for something called a contingency fund, which was referred to routinely at that time as a secret service fund. And this was essentially a slush fund that would allow the president to spend money at a moment's notice for either diplomatic, a last minute diplomatic initiative or some type of secret operation, arguably a covert or clandestine intelligence gathering operation. And the interesting thing about that request, which was passed with the assistance of James Madison in the House um, and becomes law, is that the, the legislation as it was written exempted Congress from its traditional oversight functions and control of the purse. In other words, the president could spend this money, this Secret Service fund, without having to report to Congress the details of how this money was spent. So right off the bat, you have a precedent being set by our first president that gives him a substantial control, at least over the secret arms of American foreign policy. Yeah, that's fascinating that Madison would support that. It's, yeah. And again, it's not foreign, but the, in a, even a domestic way, we know Madison supported the right of the president of Washington to unilaterally remove officers uh, yes. from, from, from his administration mm -hmm. as well. The removal debate. Yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, we, we have about five minutes left, and um, I want to throw two other questions out there that I thought were, were good or interesting, and feel free to answer either one or, or both if, if time permits. Um, one question is uh, has to do with Washington's views on secession. And uh, what Washington would have thought about secession uh, as it might have, as it started to emerge, and the, the ideas of secession as they emerged in the 1800s, had Washington been around. And the other question that I'll throw out there for you to consider is: Have there been any Washingtonian presidents since Washington? I know those are two interesting questions. So I'll, I'll let Todd answer the secession one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I would argue that he would have been, yeah, very troubled by any idea of secession. Um, and we see this in the in the farewell address. I mean, many places, but in the farewell address, where um, over and over and over again, 
he refers to union, 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 preserving the union, preservation of the union, centrality of the union. Uh, we need to make sure we do not disturb our union. Um, to him, uh, again, Washington's continentalist thinking, I think, never left him. I think that was always the, the thing that he did and thought, and that sort of drove his entire um, way of thinking about his presidential leadership and about his political thought as well. And I think the importance of union, the centrality of union, um, which was obviously a central theme in Hamilton's writings as well, uh, that for Washington was very powerful. And again, um, the, the, the continual references to that in the farewell address and the idea of the dangers of faction and how faction could lead potentially, although he doesn't talk about this specifically, but the implication is that could lead to uh, secession of some kind or different parts of the country being pulled away by the Spanish Empire in North America or the French Empire in North America or something like that. Those were very real concerns. So I think Washington uh, would have been very deeply troubled by uh, talk of secession um, because that would be, again, another huge threat to his understanding of the centrality and the importance of union. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's thank you, Todd. That's really, that, that's very clear. I also wonder if, if, for example, we we read his um, um, his sixth annual message where he's talking about what's going on in Western Pennsylvania with the with the whiskey rebellion, and I I wonder if in Washington's mind if he even would have made a distinction between secession and the kind of lawlessness that he saw taking place in those uh, in those Pennsylvania counties where essentially they've established their own government they're resisting the the legitimate government of the United States mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, for, for all intents and purposes, they have these um, the rebels have um, have declared themselves to be no longer a part of this union uh, by mm-hmm. denying the legitimacy of the of the, of the government in Washington. So, um, yeah, and look how, look how brilliantly Washington frames that in that uh, in that November the third message, um, the one where he talks about self-created societies. Washington says basically this is a contest between what he calls quote the friends to peace and good government against the vicious and turbulent. And I think that's a great way of, of framing the contest politically. You know, our side is in favor of peace and good government. The other side is vicious and turbulent. And therefore, yeah. they have to be put down. They have to be restrained. And he talks a little bit later in that same address about how this, is, this could lead to future trouble. You know, we've got to keep an eye on this. We need to maintain, he says, the stationing of a small force in those four western counties to make sure this doesn't come up again. So, you know, the fire is not fire's been put out, but we have to make sure it doesn't spark, spark up again. Chris, uh, the, uh, uh, this is a good example of sort of Washington's um, political sense, I think, in that um, he named this force that was assembled to quash the Whiskey Rebellion, he, he referred to it as the Army of the Constitution. Oh, and, right. Yeah. And, and I do think, although there's a tendency in mo- amongst modern historians to sort of celebrate the whiskey rebels as these simple backwoods folks who are being oppressed by Eastern elitists. I do think for Washington and Hamilton, the question in the whiskey rebellion was similar to the question that confronts Lincoln 60, excuse me, 70 years later. You know, does an armed minority have the right to uh, resist, you know, legitimate uh, actions taken by the government through through the people's elected representatives. In other words, the same questions in some ways that confronted Lincoln in 1861 confronted Washington in 1793, 
1794. And by the way, if I could also add, you asked earlier uh, a question about, have we had any presidents since Washington who conducted themselves in a sort of Washingtonian fashion? And I would agree with something Todd said earlier. I think Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, comes very close to sort of following the Washington model in terms of conducting a kind of hidden hand presidency. Uh, the, the impression at the time was that this was kind of a bumbling president who was not particularly all that swift, but we now know through documents that have been released years later that this was a man, this was a president who was very much on top of things. So I would equate the Eisenhower presidency with the Washington presidency. That's really interesting. That sounds like a book project, Steve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, we we have come to the end of our time. I want to answer one last question, uh, which somebody submitted uh, about recommending one good book on the Jay Treaty. Um, I would say there's a pretty good book called The Jay Treaty Debate Public Opinion and the Evolution of Early American Political Culture by by our mystery man, who unfortunately his camera is not working today. By, by I'm very excited about the webcam, yeah. Yeah, I, I strongly recommend that book. It's a fascinating read with all kinds of interesting perspectives and, and great details. So um, thanks, I will thanks type that in the chat box at the end. So okay. thank you very much, gentlemen. We've, 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 we've run out of time. Uh, I'm indebted to both of you. I've learned a great deal from our conversation today. So, so thanks again uh, for, for your time and your thoughts. Um, thanks, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Chris. Thanks great for having me. You bet. We'll try to do it again at some point. I also want to thank our, our, our participants for submitting some really fantastic questions. In the next week or so, you will receive an email uh, with a link that you can follow that will allow you to download a certificate documenting your participation in this webinar. So, so look for that email and then download your certificate of participation. If you enjoyed our conversation today, take a look at um, some of the other resources that we have available on our teachingamericanhistory.org website, including a list of courses in our Master of Arts in American History and Government program. Again, Todd and Steve both teach in that program and they're fantastic courses that they teach. Our next webinar will be uh, Saturday, September. Our next Saturday webinar will be September 19th, same time, and it will be on James Madison, Statesman for Union and Constitutional Government. So I suspect there'll be a continuation of some of the same sorts of uh, interesting things that were brought up here, and maybe we'll contrast some of Madison's views on the on the presidency with some of the things that were, were brought up today. Uh, we'll be posting information on who will join us for that conversation, as well as some readings this week. Uh, so again, thanks everybody for joining us. Until then, take care. <laughs>